and welcome to the Asher Marketing Podcast. I'm Anthony Giuliano, and our guest this week is Andy Wellfley. Andy, how are you doing? Hey, I'm great. How are you? I'm doing great. Andy, you are my favorite person in California. Now, I say that not knowing a lot of people who live in California, but you are definitely the person I know best who currently resides in the Golden State. So how are things in California these days? Oh, my gosh. Well, I mean, everything's on fire right now. And uh, other than that, <laughs> things are things are good. The, the weather is otherwise pretty pretty clear. You know, we're all going to fall into the, the ocean from an earthquake at any minute. So, like, I'm just... You know, one day at a time. <laughs> well, thank you for making all of our listeners go away. And yeah. I think this is going to be a series. No, it's, it's great, folks. <laughs> <laughs> so you're you're currently in the process. You and I were just talking about you're in the process of buying a home, which is another uh, peril in California, apparently. Yeah, I I mean, this is this would be the first time uh, for my wife and I to buy a home anywhere but like i i just look at some of the housing prices in fort wayne that we <laughs> that we never took advantage of and it just makes me cry a little bit so yeah yeah well you have moved on to some really great things in california and we want to talk about that and yeah. hear about some of the differences between uh what your life was like in indiana versus california and i want to start with your career path because you have a super interesting one and and i know you know you and i've known each other for some time so i know some of it um, going to college in Indiana, then following that up with some work for some nonprofits and then making a big leap to California. So can you talk to us a little bit about what your aspirations were when you were younger, how that worked out when you actually started a career and where you've gone from there? Yeah. Yeah. It's been kind of a, a windy road, but I think that kind of at each step I, I honed in on like something specific that I kind of like focused and, you know, and, and brought it to the next thing. But when I, so when I was in high school and college, I really, really wanted to be a journalist. So I specifically, I wanted to work in a newspaper, um, maybe be like an arts reporter. That was always kind of my passion. And so I um, went to IPFW, RIP IPFW. <laughs> I went to, I worked on the student newspaper there and, um, and I graduated, and this was in 2006 when most of the newspapers, not only in in Fort Wayne but just in general, were laying people off. It was not it was not a lucrative time to get into uh, print journalism. So I um, had some connections and some just followed some interests and passions, and I worked um, at the Fort Wayne Dance Collective in Fort Wayne. It's a um, small arts nonprofit focused on like modern dance and movement as health. Um, and that was in like 2007, and I was working as the like marketing and operations manager. Um, it was this was a really interesting time um, for a few reasons. One was because this was when social media was starting to become like something that businesses were using to to to, to talk to customers, and I was really interested in that. Um, I've always loved communication, and I've loved technology and i uh i attended this uh this thing called the while and i leadership uh institute and it was i attended a class um by you <laughs> called um something like professional communication in like corporate world or, or something like that and yeah i always in those I, classes i always i always try to quickly identify the smartest people in the room and befriend them so they don't <laughs> eat me alive so that was the case with right. you. and i i mean that just really renewed and just like made a lot of connections for me between like, Hey, this is, this is what social media is. And this is the way that like, you know, you can connect with people using social media. And that just really interested me. So kind of the next step I took in my career journey was I 
really wanted to like focus on that. That was only a small part of my job. So I um, did a couple of things, but that eventually led me to a web development agency in Fort Wayne, uh, Research Design. And I was a basically hired to help clients for whom we just built a big fancy website, figure out how to like use it with um, with Facebook and LinkedIn and Twitter and like all of the, the social channels. Um, and there, um, I realized that I really liked um, the sort of like strategy and communications portion of it, but I really wanted to like, you know, figure out how to like apply that to to like the, the building of the um, of the like of their website. And I um, spent a lot of time with our front end developers and our designers, and we really realized that like I can put these skills to use, um, like basically mapping out how content should look on the website and how to prioritize content and what the content should be and then how to like map that to the back end so our clients could easily update that content and when they should update that content and what it should say and that kind of a thing and we quickly realized that there was um there's a name for doing this this thing it's called content strategy and my boss and i read this really great um really great book that had just come out called The Elements of Content Strategy. Um, I assume you can't all see this, but I'm holding up a, a copy of this book for Anthony right now uh, by Aaron Kassane. And it was kind of an eye-opener. I was like, holy cow, this is exactly what I want to do. This is really interesting. It's taking a lot of the um, skills and interest I have in um, like writing for clarity and um, customizing messages for customers and applying it to something that's really great, which is user experience, UX. So starting into that, a few years went by and I talked to a, um, a guy I knew from, from following him on Twitter, who was a content strategist at Facebook. This was in 2014. And he was like, Andy, you should come apply at Facebook. And I'm just like, yeah, sure, whatever. Like <laughs> I work at a six person web agency in Indiana. Like that's not going to happen, but I applied they were really trying to build the team, and pretty soon I got a job offer. And Katie and I had like a, a a few weeks to decide whether or not I was going to pack it all up and move to <laughs> move to San Francisco, move to the Bay Area. So I did. Um, long story short, we did. We moved out here, worked on the content strategy team at Facebook for a few years. Um, eventually, it was it was a really great um, great group of people. I, I learned a lot, and I really loved it. Uh, there were a lot of weird things happening in the world, and Facebook was at the center of a lot of those weird things. And, and still is, yeah. And still, and still is. And yeah. it was just, a, just kind of a weird place to be. Um, yeah. And eventually what kind of happened was there was this opportunity at Adobe that came up that a friend of mine um, shared with me. Um, I don't know, uh, Anthony, if you remember uh, Brooke Francesi, who was a designer sure. yeah, um, at um uh, um, Aptera, and she yep. she had since gone and become a designer at Adobe, um, and she uh, she was like, "Hey, Andy, you should apply for this job. It's perfect." So I did, and it was an opportunity to start a content strategy practice within Adobe Design, uh, within our big product design org, and build a team and just kind of like do something really foundational. And that really yep. appealed to me. So I that's where I am. Been there for about four and a half years. It's the longest I've ever been been in a job. Yeah. Because I'm and, a typical millennial. Um, yeah. yeah, and you're building a team of your own now, correct? Correct. Yeah, we. Um, I it's, I started in 2017. It was just me for about nine months. Then I hired a couple more people, and a couple more people, and we are uh, about to hire our tenth person. Yep. Yep. 
So, so when most people think of Adobe, they think of the products, at least I would imagine. You think yeah. of the creative suite and all the things that come with that. And, and someone might be inclined to ask, okay, so why does Adobe, which makes products, need a content strategy? So can you explain what exactly you're working on and, and why Adobe decided they needed this role and how that role has evolved? Yeah. Well, one thing I should mention is that this, like the thing that I'm doing now within product at Adobe is a very, very specific niche of content strategy. Um, some people, like I, I generally call it content design. Some people call it UX writing, but it's it's basically creating the words that appear, like the interface words, right? Like, yeah. you know, the, the labels of things and the terminology that you use and microcopy and error messages and button copy. And so putting a tremendous amount, of, tremendous amount of effort into stuff that should look effortless to the user. Totally, yeah. And it should be, I mean, if, if it goes well, it's invisible, right? Like, you don't even realize that you're looking at it. If it goes poorly, which... I'll be completely honest, there's a lot of very poor <laughs> UX writing at in Adobe products from over the years. I think everybody like knows those just like hilariously dense uh, error messages that will happen that like, you know, your your Photoshop has crashed and you get this ridiculous error message that you don't know what it means. Uh, that's because uh, somebody really wasn't like paying much attention to the words when they were writing that. Um, so that's what we're trying to do. We have a long way to go. Um, and there are other content strategists at Adobe who work on um, marketing uh, surfaces or um, like web experiences or um, like corporate communications or learn content. Um, this is this is our particular niche of it within the product org. Got it. So you're not promoting Adobe's products. You are writing copy for the users of those products. Is that correct? Totally. Yep. And just it's it's a slightly different approach. We're focusing less on like something like a marketing copywriter would focus on, which might be like, you know, inspiring and informing value props, things like that. We're we're focused so much on like clarity and usability and um, reducing friction for like accomplishing something. Yeah, well, and there's a through line there from the interest in journalism, at least in my mind, yeah. because, you know, the the initial interest is I want to make complex topics understandable to the, you know, to the average person. This is I want to make, you know, this experience understandable to the average person. Absolutely. There's a parallel there. But, but talk a little bit about – I know you think a lot about this topic. Um, we'll talk in, in just a little bit about the book you co-authored. But – what what's fulfilling to you about this work? Why do you think it's meaningful? How does it how does it help people? How does it help your organization? Yeah, um, it's so in a in an ideal state. Like if we're doing our jobs correctly, we're really reducing um, reducing friction and increasing um, retention. Like people are, you know, I, I I don't know what your experience with like big scary professional creative tools are but you know if you're if you have a goal in mind like you want to create a flyer or something like that and you open photoshop or illustrator or indesign you're faced with just this sort of big empty screen right like you're you're not quite sure where to get started and you have this thing that you want to do in your mind but you just don't know how to get started doing it and you start might click around you might see like oh hey there's all these like tools in photoshop i don't really know what they do or what what these names are i can't really figure out what i need to know in order to get started ideally that's the thing we're helping with right like we're yeah. we're writing very we're we're naming tools and features in a way that's very like simple and easy to understand, kind of meet, meeting the mental model of a new user or or an experienced user. Um, sometimes those things are conflicting, sometimes they're not. Um, 
and and just really like giving them like a path to get started. So it really is like empowering people to use our tools and products um, better, right? And a big a big metric that we use um, that uh, many many companies that have like subscription models use is this metric called time to value. And basically what that means is like the amount of time between when you sign up for something and when you feel like you're getting that value out of something. Mm-hmm. Um, ideally that's really short, right? Because if you, if they sign up for something and you're paying for it, hopefully right away you, you understand the value of it because yeah. you're paying for it. Sometimes that doesn't happen for months. And in the meantime, somebody might be like, why am I paying $50 a month for this. I'm just going to cancel. Yeah. So ideally, one of the things that we can kind of directly influence with um, with our work is is reducing that time to value and really letting people get into it from as, as early as possible. Yeah. And I would assume that some of this is driven by the competitive environment because like, like most companies, Adobe has more competition now than ever before. And one of the things that is out there, there's a number of different solutions that at least claim to make the experience easy even for unexperienced designers. Is, is this a response to that competitive environment? And if so, you know, how does that relate to what you're doing? Yeah. Um, in some respects, I think it is. I think Adobe's Adobe's interesting in that it's just a it's a pretty old company. Like it's it's been around for 35-ish years. Um, and we have a lot of competitors in certain like markets and certain segments, but we don't really have any sort of like big holistic competitors. Like Microsoft, for example, is a company that looks very much like Adobe. It's actually much bigger than Adobe is, but they're not really competitors in how they, um, uh, like where our products kind of fit together. But at the same time, like they, they're very much like we're, (laughs) we're competitors of like building teams out, right? Like they, we hire a lot of the same people. And I think, I think adding a uh, content design practice to, um, our design team it was a was a good competitive move. Um, by the time I started Adobe, there were more than a hundred people doing this very thing at Facebook. Um, Shopify, which is a, a big organization, has a bunch of content designers. It just was it's it's part of a bigger full stack design team, and yeah. much in the way that people hire like UX researchers now, like in a big way, sure. people hire like uh, tech like particulars like systems designers and ux designers and visual designers it's just part of a part of a balanced meal (laughs) of design yeah Yeah. and that's that's kind of what we were doing yeah yeah, and you're doing this work without having had a conventional training in web development so your you i would assume you learned some of that language at reser and then have sort of learned as you go how much how how well, would you say you know the coding world? Do you need to know it, or is that something you know enough to speak the language, and that's good enough? Yeah, yeah. I had, um, I mean, just a, a personal interest in website building before even I worked at Research. So I had a br- basic working understanding of HTML and CSS and like PHP and some of those kind of languages, but um, I absolutely do not have any knowledge or experience of code in like developing software applications or uh, like iOS or Android apps. Um, I I think that one can get into this role without understanding any of that. Um, the thing that I think you need to understand or have an affinity for is um, just just UX knowledge, right? Like UX, like user user centered um, design or 
as uh, IDEO calls it, design thinking. That's kind of a, a big a big term that people use nowadays. Um, we used to call it human-computer interaction. HCI is a thing that if you went to IU Bloomington, they have a big school of um, of like a big HCI school there. Um, so it's something that I think is important to know. I think it's easy to learn if you already have a very like user-centered mindset, uh, which I would argue journalism is a user like instead of user, it's a reader. Um, but you have a, a mindset to write for that audience. So there's a lot of parallels there, and I think that as long as you have the ability to have like a systems thinking approach to writing, you uh, you're kind of like set up for success in a role like that. So you can't. One thing I should mention is you can't get a degree in in content strategy like that just doesn't exist it's 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 a newish newish and highly adapting and evolving uh role and i think the university of washington offers a course in strategic communication which has a lot of those things built in um my friend and yours uh kristen miller who is teaching at um, saint francis is teaching a class in public relations but she does a lot of talking about um, content strategy and uh applying like a ux mindset to that yeah. So there's a lot of like little pockets of people thinking about that stuff. There's a few certification programs, but it's not a formalized um, it's not a formalized field in any in any way. Sure. So, yeah. so well, one of the things I think you, you you've sp- you've spoken to, and I know as well, is that higher ed. As much as I love higher ed, it tends to be a little slow in bringing some of these skills into the classroom. So the folks who are doing this work, the folks like you, your peers, what backgrounds do they tend to come from? Is it journalism, English, PR, that type of background, or is some of them coming from like software development and other areas? Yeah, all of those things. Um, uh, I, I have an English degree with a journalism minor. Um, I, <laughs> I I honestly think that uh, my literature classes, which I loved, um, sets me up perfectly for this role because it. I there's a lot of there's a lot of critical thinking involved. There's a lot of like, um, I guess I would call it like textual analysis. There's a lot of yeah. saying like, like, hey, this thing is very much like this thing, or like, you know, let's yeah. figure these out. Like all of those papers that I wrote about like the Bronte sisters in <laughs> in college is relevant to this role. Um, journalism, library science is, I think, a really good. Um, a really good degree that like prepares you for a lot of this stuff. We have a few people with, with um, kind of like library and information science backgrounds. Um, there's, we have, there's a lot of people who have design, like design or uh, web development backgrounds in this role. People who are like, you know, I really understand deeply like how this stuff is made, but I think the stuff that really empowers me is the, the, the information architecture, like the structure of information and writing and words, um, and that I, I think really sets you up for for success here. Um, but there are people there are people in this role from, gosh, like I know somebody who was like a chemistry major. I know somebody who has a PhD in archaeology, which sets yeah. her up for success. It's a it's an yeah. interesting for sure. Um, I think I think the bigger thread is that people you know. People talk about how liberal arts programs aren't going to set you up to pay the bills, right? Like they're getting cut all over the place. That happened at <laughs> at IPFW before IPFW was kind of scuttled. Yeah. Like people people are down on liberal arts programs, and this is a super lucrative field that your liberal arts program will absolutely your liberal arts degree will absolutely set you up for. 
Yeah, well, and, and I, I agree with that for sure as a fellow English major. When people ask me, you know, what did what did being an English major prepare you to do? I say email. I'm really good at email <laughs> because yeah. it's a word problem, right? You know, the 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 client is in Nashville and the bus is traveling 60 miles an hour and there are three cases of beer on the bus. What's the bus driver's name? That's the problem yeah. I solve every day. I just yeah. do it through email instead of through, yeah. you know, interpreting literature. So, yes, yeah, for sure. Strategic communication. You can apply that toward interpersonal relationships. You can apply that toward communicating complicated things to users. You can apply that toward so many things. And people people call it soft skills. And I, I think I, I know I don't know about you, but I know many people who are very good at uh, coding and computer science and those hard skills who are very poor at talking to people. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah. I, I might argue that soft skills are the hardest skills of all. Well, let's 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 rebrand that as hard skills. How's that? That sounds good. <laughs> exactly. <Yeah. laughs> That'll attract a lot of people. <laughs> yeah. Absolutely. Well, in addition to thinking about this stuff, you have also co-authored a book called Writing is Designing, which you were good enough to send me a copy of. Thank you very much. Tell me a little bit about the book. What inspired it? How did you produce the book? And what what have been some of the byproducts of writing that book? Yeah. So uh, back – so the day before I went out to California to interview for this role at Facebook, I went to this workshop at Midwest UX which is a big conference that kind of travels around the Midwest every year. Excuse me. And it was called um, something like visual communication for writers. And it was basically, are you a writer on a team full of other designers and coders and things, and you need to communicate your ideas, but they're not going to read like a big long, like treatise that you've written. What are some ways you could do that? And so I, was working in research design. This was a very relevant topic to me. Um, and so it was taught by these two guys, uh, Michael Metz and Scott Kuby. Um, and super smart. I connected with them kind of after the workshop to, to just chat. Um, didn't think about it for another couple of years and went on to work at uh, Facebook. And uh, I attended a conference called Confab, which is a large content strategy conference um, in Minneapolis every year. And I kind of reconnected with Michael Metz, who was... Um, teaching that workshop. And he and I were both in roles where we were thinking, like, there's a lot of broad content strategy topics being talked about at Confab, but nothing kind of in our niche. We weren't, nobody was really talking about um, the fundamentals of UX writing or how to think about voice and tone for products, things like that. And we were like, you know, this, this is the stuff I'm interested in learning. We're not seeing that around here. And Michael was like, what if we pitched a workshop like that? So we did. (laughs) And, uh, that was in 2015, um, and it was accepted, and we kind of kept on teaching this workshop at further confabs and then other organizations. We went to like, other conferences. We went to Singapore for Singapore Design Week and taught this workshop there. Uh, and eventually, um, Christina Halverson, who runs Confab and is kind of the uh, – we call her the mother of content strategy. She she literally wrote the book about content strategy, content strategy for the web. And uh, she connected us with um, – this guy, Lou Rosenfeld, who has a publishing company about uh, UX books, and he was looking for um, he was looking for a book about UX writing for doing this thing where you know you're writing words and interfaces and all this stuffs kind of surrounding that. So we had this this workshop. We had all this material. We had this this thought. And we basically were like, what if like let's turn this into a book? So we uh, so we did. We went through a year long sort of like proposal process. <laughs> it was pretty intense 
took us about uh, took took us about like eight nine months to write. Took us another few months to edit. We had this pretty intensive um, uh, process of um, developmental editing, and finally published it in January 2020. And the I think the thesis of the book is. Um, Treating writing as a design practice. It's called Writing is Designing. Um, a previous title that we went another way with was, um, we we're going to call it Designing with Words. So basically using language and words as design material instead of pixels or colors or rectangles or whatever you're designing with. And it, the reason we kind of framed it as such is because in our own careers, whenever we are working on large design teams trying to convince designers that, hey, we should be part of this process at every step along the way, instead of like what would often happen, which is they would include us at the end and they would leave room in the design for like holes yeah. like that's with Lorem Ipsen text. And here's they're like, here's your button. Yeah. Put something. Yeah. Fill, in, fill in words in this word hole. Yeah. And. Which isn't really useful because we like what if what if that's not the problem with the experience? What if you can't put a word band-aid on a design problem? And we're basically encouraging people to think about not these separate practices of writing and design, but thinking about writing as part of that design process. So that's that's where that came from, and that's kind of how we framed the book um, because we we spent less time on like the how tos of writing because. If you want to be in this job, being a good writer is a given. Like that's table stakes, right? You need to do that. Yeah. So what you need to think about is sort of that design practice. So it's basically a book about design for writers. Uh, incidentally, also, I talked about uh, Scott Kuby, that guy who Michael Metz, my co-author, was doing this workshop with. Um, he is also a friend of mine since then, good friend of, of Michael's. And he wrote a book called Writing for Designers later on in kind of a completely parallel track. And so we like to joke that his book is writing, but for designers and our book is designing, but for writers. So they're pretty, they're pretty complimentary. Yeah. Yeah. It's chocolate and peanut yeah. butter. And yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. So, um, yeah. you know, one of the things there that really strikes me as interesting is the lesson in repurposing content. You know, you had a great workshop that hey, this could be a book. This could be a number of different things. Um, and in sort of a meta way, I interviewed you for my column, and now you're on the podcast, and we're talking about some of the same things. Yeah. So, <laughs> so writers and designers, repurpose your content in as many ways as possible. Absolutely. I, now, lot, I know I mean, so many people will will write a book and then turn it into a workshop and kind of take that on the road. And I, we kind of went the opposite way, which has been really interesting because, honestly, after writing the book, it helped us sort of repurpose our workshop again, which we've been doing – uh, virtually, you know, every every once in a while, we'll offer like a public workshop that you know people have attended, which is cool. Yeah. Now, a lot of people I know who have authored a book are working on their next one. Uh, is that true for you? Do you have another book idea, it was, or is it one was enough and don't want to be part of that? Maybe someday, but that was honestly one of the hardest <laughs> things I've done, and I I need a very long break from that. I've um, this is maybe the topic of a different podcast, but I have been a lot more interested in uh, work writing zines lately. I, I'm. It's just a fun, small project, and I get to do stuff like design my own cover and fold them in my house and send them to people. So I'm, I'm much more, uh, I'm much more down for something like that right now. Yeah. Well, it yeah. sounds like you deserve a break after that. So for sure. Okay. 
Yeah. Well, I want to turn to the speed round of the show and talk about a few of the things we've discussed, but in a little more of a concise way. So I want to talk yeah. first about career path, because I mean, truly, of the people I know, you've worked for some of the most fascinating companies. And, you know, I'm sure you have the opportunity to talk to people who aspire to work for the likes of Facebook and Adobe and who, you know, aspire to work in the tech hub that is that you're part of the world. What's your best piece of advice, you know, having come from really small nonprofits in Northeast Indiana to where you are? Not that that is dependent upon any specific geography, but what's your best advice in terms of being successful in a career? Um, that's a great that's a great question. For me, what's been really successful is um, really trying to like find a niche, right? Like I I went from at the beginning of my career just really loving words and strategic communication and tech. And those are great. There's so many different kind of jobs you can get in that that field. Um, but when I kind of like went from like these very small jobs to like working at this very large company with like dozens of thousands of people, um, having a specific niche was really useful and important and a focus. I've talked to people when I worked at Facebook, when I work at Adobe, like I talked to people who were like, hey, I would love to work at a big company like that. Um, I am a front-end designer and developer. Uh, is there a place for me like there? And oftentimes, oftentimes there's not. Like you have to kind of focus in on on like, do you want to be a designer? Or do you want to be a developer? And I hate that that's kind of a choice that somebody wants to make uh, or somebody needs to make. But that's how these kind of companies hire. They hire for very specialized things. Um, so if you have a specific specialized interest pursue it and kind of like grow in that area. Um, and all of your other sort of like general knowledge that you might already have will be super useful in supporting that that particular choice. Does that make sense? Yeah, it does. Well, and another follow-up question, because you've worked for really small organizations and done well there. What's the key there? Because, I, you know, for me, one of the things I've learned and, and either is a choice and there's concessions either way, but I've found that I really like working for small organizations because I like variety. I, I don't want yeah. to do one specific thing. I want to do a number of things. And, I, and I'm admittedly much more of a generalist. But what what are some of the lessons you learned about working and succeeding in small companies? As companies with you know three people and six people, how do you how do you rec what do you recommend people do if they want to succeed in that environment? Yeah. Um Easier said than done because this is something I feel like I was not great at. Um, but I, I think that being comfortable with and embracing ambiguity is really, really important. Um, I, in my role at Research Design, for example, I was hired to do a really specific thing, and we sort of realized that like there's this this broader thing that I could do, or there's this very um, uh, tangential thing from what I was hired to do that I could do, and it took a little bit of like trying it out and a little bit of convincing both my boss and clients that this is marketable, like this is something we can sell. And I I think a lot of it was just like being willing to step outside of your 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 box and try stuff out. And that was hard and ambiguous. And we were we were creating documents and deliverables and processes that we thought was right, but we didn't have a name for it. <laughs> like, like what, what the heck is this thing we're trying to structure? And later on, we would find out like, oh, that's called a content model. That's what something yeah. that like is established in the world of content strategy. But at the same time, I had no, no idea what it is. Like, I, I sort of knew what I wanted to accomplish, but I didn't quite know how to get there. 
Um, and just kind of sticking with that, I think it's really easy to just stay in your lane and try stuff out. So a little bit, I guess I'm arguing for the opposite of what I was saying earlier, which is to specialize. But at the same time, I think that will doing that will kind of help you figure out what you need to do in order to focus and specialize and really develop a niche. Yeah, and I think there's I think there's value in both and, and really a need yeah. for both that you have to have broad expertise, but you also there's an imperative to focus on one thing. Um, you know, when yeah. you and I were both super in, interested in social media when it first emerged and I had an ambition, I want to be in Northeast Indiana, I want to be the social media guy. And then about two years in, I was like, this is nuts. There's way too much to know. And I kind of planted my flag. I'm okay being the LinkedIn guy. If people have questions, large questions about social media, yeah, I can help them with that. But I don't want to get into the weeds on some of the other platforms. So you can have it both ways, but you can't. You can have it both ways, but you can't specialize in everything within that more generalized expertise. Yeah, absolutely. And it's a... It's, I think, yeah, it's, it's good to see, what am I trying to say? I think it's really good to just kind of like follow where your thoughts and intuitions and, and interests guide you, right? Like I, I also was very much into, you know, writing for social media and like thinking about how businesses can use it in, you know, in, in their world. And I kind of quickly realized that like, Marketing, like I was, I had all of my my seeds in the marketing, like garden, right? Like I really love that, and it took me a little while. And finally, I was just like, I can't. I think we had a conversation about this. I was working at pencils.com, love love pencils, love stationery, and I just realized, like, oh shoot, like I don't want to be working marketing. (laughs) I I want to write. I want to work in communications and writing and uh, tech, but. I don't want to be a marketer. And I, that was hard and led me eventually to this path, which is very, I think very related to marketing, but had let me do things that were different than the things that I would have to be doing if I was in like a marketing role. Sure. Well, I think there's another lesson in that just because you're good at something doesn't mean it's your destiny from a career standpoint. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. All right. So here's, here's the hardest question I'm going to ask you. Um, and it's, it's I'm putting you on the spot because it's very meta, um, but I'd like to hear your thoughts. If somebody asked you to describe content strategies succinctly, like, you know, somebody said, I don't have a lot of time, but tell me what is content strategy? How do you describe it? So someone who has no knowledge of it would, would understand the concept. Really broadly, I would um, describe it as basically the, the, planning and creation and uh, maintenance of uh, content. And by content, I mean, um, I mean, broadly, content is so many things. In my specific part of the world, it is the, uh, the words that you that appear in uh, user interfaces and products and also kind of in user experience, which can involve emails and the web and all those things as well. Um, so that that's probably how I'd really succinctly talk about it. Um, sometimes also I tell people that I am a writer on a design team, like a product design team. Mm-hmm. And that's a good way to describe it as well. And people are like, what do you, what do you write? And I'm just like, 
You know how when you you know use apps, they have all those words on there. That that's the stuff that I write. <laughs> yeah, it kind of demystifies it right there. But yeah, yeah, yeah somebody sure. has to write those words, and it's right. it's amazing. People don't realize how focused you get on writing those words. Like you can have meetings upon meetings to write like two sentences worth of words. <laughs> it's a much yeah. different process than writing like a blog post. Well, and I think that's that's reflective of what I think is the biggest one of the biggest communication challenges that we have today, and that is the difficulty and the challenge that comes with making it appear effortless. You know, the, the way, the comparison I've always used is when I was an English major and I was writing in an academic way, I was creating these huge sculptures that were really bad. They were they were big. Um, and, and now what I do is I take a big, bad sculpture and chip away, chip away, chip away until only what is needed is there. And it's actually, in a lot of respects, way more difficult to send a good email about a difficult topic than it was to write a five page paper about Macbeth. Um, It's it's just a different, it's a different challenge, not to denigrate the academic exercise because there's value in it. But what people want today is clear and concise in a world where very little is clear and concise. Yeah. Yep. And it's to me, to me, it's, it's really an interesting challenge in that you balance, like when you're working on this, you're, you're balancing times when you, can be can you can focus more on the brand right like you can be a little bit more friendly you can you can reflect the brand a little bit more in your words um but sometimes you have to sort of like just focus on clarity like kind of chip away the the like the the facade of the brand and just really get to kind of the core of what you're writing and because sometimes if if somebody's in a very confusing experience or you're trying to tell them something specific the brand voice is just too confusing and yeah not understandable but sometimes something's just really boring if you're trying to like get them to be engaged and you're trying to surprise and delight somebody like you want a little bit of a, a friendliness or a brand voice so that's that's one of the big things we talk about in our workshop and in our book is we try to like help people come up with frameworks to identify when it's appropriate to use one or the other and we call that we call that voice and tone basically yeah, yeah. yeah. well and i would i would suspect that you know my my suspicion is that younger audiences have way more highly attuned BS meters. You know, I'm, I'm Gen X and we're still much more marketing tolerant, I think, than people your age and younger. And brands have to speak with, you know, with, with much more of a conversational voice today in order for anybody to pay attention. That's my suspicion. I don't know if you agree, but yeah, I I agree. I mean, there's so much, uh, Like I really early on, like in my career, when I was just starting to think about this stuff, I think I just ran across the Clue Train Manifesto. Mm -hmm. Um, And it was, I mean, how, when was it written in the nineties? It's still really relevant today. I have a small wing of my library. That's all books that Andy Welfley. (laughs) I, I'm sort of surprised that I didn't learn about it from you in your, in your workshop, but um, maybe I just like heard it, heard about it elsewhere. But yeah, it was, I think it's extremely, extremely useful and foundational in the way that things happen now. It's basically like, hey, wouldn't it be great if uh, brands didn't speak like some corporate monolith and had like a more kind of like authentic voice? Um, sometimes I think that can you can get, you can take that too far. <laughs> but sure. I, I definitely think that it is very foundational the way that we think about this and the way that I think about that. Yeah, yeah. for sure. 
Well, um, I've got one more question for you, and you've been super generous with your time, especially since it is the middle of your day. It's nearly the end of mine. Yeah. But yeah, one more question, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to throw a little bit of a curveball. We've been talking on this podcast a lot about sort of the what we've learned from, from COVID. I think kind of everyone's tired of that. So what I want to hear from you is – what you've learned from making a big move from Indiana, California, what have you learned about yourself or about your career path that you didn't know before that surprised you and you think will stick with you moving forward? Ooh, that's a really great question. Um, I, yeah, <laughs> give me a second here. Yeah. Um, I mean, for for me, for me, the 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 main the main reason like this move has been valuable is because I like I've I've been following career opportunities, right? Like I think that there's I mean, there's a lot of good careers in in web development, in marketing, in things like that in Fort Wayne and in, in Northeast Indiana. Um, but I at some point. At some point after a LinkedIn search, I realized that I was the only content strategist that I could figure out that I that I that I knew in, in Indiana. And I really realized that like at one point if I wanted to follow this niche and if I wanted to grow here, I was gonna have to do that somewhere else. And I I mean I lived for what, thirty thirty two years of my life in Fort Wayne and I built up a bunch of friends here. I you know built up a career and just just it was it was my it was my my place and uh i we in moving to san francisco we really love it it's a wonderful place amazing food just really good culture uh <laughs> housing prices that are through the roof uh compared yeah. to what i was used to but um i i mean we i made i made friends here like there's people here who i know and this is this is this is home um yeah and it's it's something where i think i think you can find i think you can find your people else any like anywhere right like if yeah. you're if you have people who are listening to this podcast who are moving from san francisco or l a or New york or denver or whatever to fort wayne like that's that's great like you will find you will find your people you will find your your niche you'll find your your group um like it's a it's a good it's a good move for you. Um, so I I don't know if that really answered your question, but I well, it does. I yeah yeah. yeah. And, 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 and I, 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 go ahead. Sorry. I I also just just really am able to kind of like see what what value Fort Wayne has and brings. Like my like my, my family lives there. I'm going to be back there in a few weeks. Um, I I think it's a. <laughs> do you, do you remember when? Um, Visit Fort Wayne or one of the chambers or somebody had that motto, Room for Dreams. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I well, got a lot of negative at backlash it. at the time, I remember. Yeah. A lot of negative backlash. A lot of, uh, lot of making fun of it that I certainly did. Um, but <laughs> I, now I'm like like literal room. Like I live in a 700-square-foot uh, apartment. <laughs> <laughs> There's not a lot of room. 
And luckily, I mean, my dreams don't take up a lot of room. Like I'm not trying to start a family. Like this is yeah. this this works well for my life. But if I if I wanted to start a family, it would be extremely hard and expensive to do do so, and it would be much easier to do in Fort Wayne. So, I I think that whoever uh, whoever worked on that motto was onto something because if you are coming to Fort Wayne uh, because you're pursuing a dream like that, like it's a good place to do it. Yeah, well, we have to find snarky yeah. young Andy Wealthy maybe, and slap him one for that. Maybe, yes. maybe that motto wasn't for me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, and, yeah. and you know, my experience has been, you know, kind of the opposite. Moving from the Boston area to Northeast Indiana, I think there's value in just doing something different when you're relatively young. And and like you, I really appreciate the fact that I have two places I can call home. I go back to Boston and it's the people who knew me in high school and before I'm here. This is where my professional network is. Um, but it's definitely, it's good. And I applaud you for shaking things up a little bit and taking a risk because it is a risk too. Yeah. Well, thank you. Yeah. It's a, it was a risk at one point we were just like, I, you know, I have this, this, the salary offer, which seemed astronomical, but then I would look at like rent prices and I'm like, Oh, that's, that's probably not so astronomical after all. <laughs> Yeah. And yeah. and I think we were at a place where we were just like, you know, let's let's see like I I would not assume that you know, Facebook would offer me a salary that was like was not livable in the Bay Area. So we yeah, we did some things and made it work and I I I absolutely feel like for me I was able to advance in a career in a way that I wouldn't have been able to if I was if I was in Fort Wayne at that time. And yeah, that's sure. not to say Fort Wayne is a, a bad place to pursue a career. Just, just at that point, not the one that I'm, I was trying to do. Yeah, for sure. Well, Andy, yeah. it has been truly amazing to watch what you've done and how you've grown and some of the things you've accomplished. It's, it's amazing to, to see that growth and I, I'm proud to know you. You do great work and you're, you're a great guy on top yeah. of all that. So I really well, appreciate it. And, and let me just, let me just tell your listeners that I truly believe that it was, what was it, 2010, 2011? I can't remember when that was, that workshop was. But it, like your workshop there and your influence absolutely sort of like shifted my mindset and how one thinks about communications and, and the internet. So um, you are absolutely a key part of how I, how I went, went down this path. Well, well, thank you. And and I'm going to end on that note because it doesn't get any better than that. And I'm not <laughs> going to do anything else this week. I'm done. That's that's the best it can get. So I really appreciate you saying that. Have a, have, a, have a beer and enjoy the weekend. Yeah. Well, well, thank you. Genuinely, thank you very much. And thanks to everyone who took the time to listen to this episode. We'll be back next week with another great guest. And we hope you'll join us then.